This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'll be discussing human adaptation to high altitude and aquatic environments. And I'm sure for this audience, a slide like this is rather familiar, where we're looking at distinct patterns of variation within our species. And specifically for this talk, we're looking at how population history or natural selection impacts the variation we see today. So I am working in a physiology department where we're often thinking about components and subcomponents of physiology. And we really are interested in these systems when things go awry and result in some sort of disease. However, on the other side of the coin, we can look at adaptation to particular environments. Um, some examples of that include sickle cell disease, skin pigmentation, and even lactase persistence, which we've heard about in previous CARDA symposia. And in these cases, we have some examples of what we refer to as convergent adaptation, where two different populations, in this case of European and African ancestry, are able to digest milk into adulthood, and individuals perhaps with a certain skin pigmentation are maladapted to a, a particular environment. So these classic approaches in physiology can be very useful for looking at traits in human populations as well. And then thinking about genomics and sort of the parallels with physiology here, we're looking at pathways and networks. And again, we pay attention to these systems when they result in disease. So when we're looking at studies of disease, we need thousands of cases and thousands of controls uh, to identify genetic targets. However, if we're looking at studies of adaptation within our species, we can capture enough information from 25 individuals to really pinpoint some of these genetic factors. And then we can link those back to the physiology, as in all of those examples I showed you previously. So we can use a lot of these novel tools to answer long-standing genetic questions. So there have been many studies completed in populations throughout the world showing genetic signatures of selection. So for today, I'll be focusing on high altitude um, and also populations that have adapted to diving, so aquatic environments. So we'll start by discussing some of the work um, that we've done in areas near Mount Everest and Machu Picchu. So I've stolen that from our National Geographic grant, um, but really just going to a lot of these villages to try to understand adaptations and maladaptations. Now, high altitude environs are really one of the most extreme regions that humans have occupied and lived at for thousands and thousands of years. So if we think about populations in the Tibetan Plateau, who have been there anywhere to up to 30 to 40,000 years, the Andean Altiplano for 12 to 14,000 years, or even the Ethiopian highlands where people have moved into and out of high altitude and intermediate region, intermediate altitude regions for um, tens of thousands of years. So each of these populations provide a natural experiment for examining the human response to hypoxia. Now, if we look at just a snapshot of these different traits, right, we could have a sojourner, somebody who's visiting altitude, or some of these other highland populations. And if we compare different traits across these groups, we can see that there's really a collection of unique traits, right? There isn't just one thing that's different, but really uh, a, a number of different factors to consider. And I should point out, these could be adaptive or maladaptive. Now, one of the traits that's been most extensively studied is hemoglobin concentration. So if I look at hemoglobin concentration, again, hemoglobin being the molecule that transports oxygen throughout the blood um, in male and female Andean individuals, you can see that the levels of hemoglobin are much higher at this high altitude, so 4,000 meters. The range that you would expect to see here in San Diego or at sea level is shown here in red. But if many of us went up to high altitude, we would increase our red blood cell production as well. However, when you look at the Tibetan population, we see that their hemoglobin concentration is comparable to what you would expect at sea level, even though they're at 4,000 meters. So clearly they have some mechanism to maintain lower hemoglobin, even though they are at high altitude. So let's start by talking about the populations in Tibet, so 4,200 meters above sea level. So we set out with a hypothesis that there would be certain genes involved in altitude adaptation, specifically those involved 
in hypoxia sensing and response, and this is the hypoxia-inducible factor pathway. It controls hundreds and hundreds of genes within our genome. And then we perform two different types of tests for selection. So we generate these list of selection candidate genes. And what we're really interested in is that overlap of functional candidates, things that we think might be involved in adaptation, and those that are showing this really striking pattern in the genome. So what does that pattern look like? Well, we refer to it as a selective sweep. And if I took a, pop, a population, say, from hundred, several hundred generations ago, and we looked at their genome, and we lined up a single segment of their genome here and compared it within the population, we might see that these black dots representing the, the variants that we have compared to a reference really don't show a particular pattern. However, if there is an individual who has a beneficial variant, and that variant increases over time, so again, hundreds of generations, um, and can eventually become fixed within the population, it leaves behind this really striking pattern in the genome. And so we can look at that pattern to find these incomplete or complete selective sweeps. Now, I've been showing you cartoons over here. Um, but really, these are the actual data that we obtain from Tibetan individuals. So again, just lining up their chromosomal segments at these particular regions revealed that there was, in fact, a selective sweep at some of these hypoxia-inducible factor pathway genes. And hopefully you can appreciate when I show the Han Chinese genomes that there is a very stark contrast. And so there is definitely a signal that we're seeing in the Tibetan genomes. So next, we wanted to test whether or not these genetic markers were associated with a particular phenotype, in this case, hemoglobin concentration. So what we found was, in fact, that with more copies of the adaptive region, an individual tended to have a lower hemoglobin concentration. So interestingly, we have now been able to look at whole genome sequences, where before we were just looking at those single variants or those flag posts throughout the genome to pick up those patterns. But once we look at the whole genome, we were able to find that, in fact, there were some archaic variants there. I'm sure many of you have actually done 23andMe, and perhaps you know your Neanderthal profile. I tried to look that up for the fellow speakers, but I only came across Joanne's. I don't know who Joanne is, but she has 300 Neanderthal variants, and that's 82% more of other 23andMe customers. What you might also learn about is your Denisovan profile. So this is another archaic population. And in fact, there are regions of the Tibetan genome that are more similar to this population than any other human population. And so what's been interesting to find is that some of these adaptive genes are within these regions of archaic intergression. And in fact, this is one of the regions that is linked to hemoglobin concentration as well. So why is it that there is relatively lower hemoglobin concentration in some individuals? Well, we wanted to look at oxygen utilization. So we decided to have our participants complete a VO2 max study. So this is peak VO2 on the y-axis and hemoglobin concentration on the x-axis. And what I hope you can see is that individuals with lower hemoglobin concentration tend to have a higher peak VO2 which is a bit counterintuitive perhaps for some um, competitive athletes, and maybe some, some people might be interested in how to better utilize oxygen in certain situations, um, and perhaps even for some of the running that, that can be done. Um, but in all of those cases, it's really just a slight advantage or a slight increase uh, of hemoglobin that makes a big difference. In these highland populations, it's sort of a different story where we're looking at a really wide range of variation and very strong selective pressure. So here we see lower hemoglobin is associated with increased exercise capacity. And so we were interested in looking at how this relates to the entire oxygen transport cascade. So just to remind you, lower hemoglobin concentration is associated with adaptive changes in Tibetan's DNA and increased exercise capacity. And when we dug a little deeper, we found that in fact heart and muscle function as well as ventilation uh, were very important for this exercise capacity finding. And then thinking about this breathing or control of breathing in these populations, it's been known for a while that the hypoxic ventilatory response, this is one of the characteristics I had shown in, in the earlier slides, uh, is really distinct in the Tibetan population. They appear to maintain an elevated response uh, compared to others, including their Andean counterparts. 
And this is something we're working on with the original authors of this study uh, to figure out if there is, in fact, a genetic basis to this. So now to switch over to talking about some of the populations in the Andes that we have studied um, and we feel very fortunate that they have been so interested in, in working with our team over the years um, to complete a lot of this work to study not only adaptation, but also maladaptation in this population. So there is something called chronic mountain sickness that is much more common among Andeans compared to Tibetan Highlanders. And there are a slew of unfortunate um, outcomes that are associated with chronic mountain sickness. And one of the key differences is this excessive urethrocytosis or this overproduction of red blood cells. Many of those have phenotypes that parallel those that we see in pulmonary disease. And we think this could be in fact attributed to some of these differences in the control of breathing. So we have done work um, with a number of investigators here at UCSD and abroad to look at this question uh, in terms of oxygen saturation and breathing. Uh, and we've even done sleep studies at night. And what we find is that the lower saturations are associated with higher hematocrit, um, as well as the time spent below a 80% oxygen saturation at night. So these things are likely contributing to some of the maladaptive phenotypes in this population. So switching gears back to the genetics, um, there were a couple of genes that I've mentioned so far, EPAS1, uh, which was identified as being intergressed from the Denisovan population in Tibetans. And then we found early stage selection of, of this gene in Andeans as well, as well as Eglin1. So this gene is associated with the hemoglobin in Tibetans. And then the variants that we've identified there are at low frequency or they're completely absent in Andeans. But there was some recent work done to show that, that in fact, there are variants at this region that are associated with exercise capacity in this population. So in addition to those very um, important genes in the HIF pathway, we have a number of other candidates that have come up in more than one study. And so these are all studies based on uh, the Tibetan population but when we look in other groups as well, we can see that there are additional uh, evidence for targets of selection in these populations. And then to take that a step further, we even see that in high altitude species, um, including uh, deer mice and um, yak and even fruit flies that are studied here at UCSD. So now thinking about some of the work, not in the mountains, but actually within the seas. Um, so in our group, we have been able to look at carboxyhemoglobin levels in elephant seals. And specifically, this is the work of Michael Tift, who is a postdoc uh, in the lab and had done some work at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And what he found is that these elephant seals had carbon uh, monoxide, or the carboxyhemoglobin levels, that were comparable to a human cigarette smoker. Right? So these are extremely elevated in that population. Interestingly, one of the genes that we identified in Tibetans is this heme oxygenase gene. And this gene is involved in the breakdown of heme, and it's from the breakdown of heme that you get carbon monoxide production. So we all have that small amount um, of carbon monoxide that we produce. Uh, and one of the questions has become whether or not Tibetans are benefiting perhaps from these low to moderate levels of carbon monoxide in their blood. Now, I have been told that the Tibetans smoke so much because it, they say it makes them feel better at high altitude. I don't know if that's the case, but perhaps there is something to carbon monoxide. Um, there are a lot of studies now looking at the therapeutic potential of carbon monoxide, and there could be some interesting clues from these well-adapted species. Additionally, when we look at our Andean Highlanders, so this is Mike using the same exact instrument on one of our favorite participants, uh, uh, in Cerro de Pasco, Peru, uh, we see that there is, in fact, a relationship of increased um, carbo carboxyhemoglobin with uh, the total hemoglobin increase as well. Okay, so now I have told you about the work in the highland populations, and I want to focus specifically on Melissa Alardo's work looking at diving populations, specifically the Baijiu uh, in Indonesia. And so this work was published just a few years ago in Cell, and Melissa went to Indonesia to collect samples from um, this population in addition to phenotype information. 
And one of her first questions that she wanted to ask was whether the baijiu have larger spleens. And this is because they do very deep dives um, and are able to hold their breaths for extended periods of time. And so in other marine mammals specifically, there are enlarged spleens, which serve as a reservoir uh, for red blood cells. And so what she found, in fact, is that in the baijiu population, uh, the spleens are, are quite a bit larger than what she observed in non-baijiu. So these were neighboring populations who do not have the um, same history of, of diving like the baijiu. And unlike our study, she actually just took a saliva sample. So she wasn't looking at hemoglobin concentration or, or any blood phenotypes. Um, but from the saliva, much like a 23andMe kit, um, she was able to get genomic information. And so she looked at some of the markers scattered across the genome and identified an interesting signal at the gene PDE10A. And this was among many different important targets of selection. But this one in particular, turned out was associated with spleen size. So if you compare the number of adaptive genetic copies for this particular gene uh, in, in the context of spleen size, you could see that with more adaptive copies, the individual tends to have a larger spleen. Uh, her work now in animal models is suggesting that there is some increase in thyroid hormone uh, that is associated with the PDN, PDE10A uh, association. So a lot of this work that I've told you about, um, both by our group and by Melissa, is really uh, a focus of a center that we've developed here at UCSD. So this is a center for physiological genomics of low oxygen. And again, we're very interested in looking at natural variation on the spectrum of adaptive and maladaptive phenotypes and genotypes, um, and hope to continue a lot of this work even across species uh, in order to better elucidate some of the changes that have happened in human populations in our evolutionary history. So in conclusion, we see that there are a lot of adaptive factors in Tibetans and Andeans. Some of them are showing up as the same genes, perhaps with different specific functional markers that are associated with key phenotypes. In the Baijiu, we do see that there is an adaptive signature that is associated with spleen size. And again, just important to keep in mind for all of these studies that there are these unique population histories that really help shape the variation that we see today. And I would argue, right, being cross-disciplinary in genomics and physiology that we really need to integrate across these fields. And so with that, I'd like to thank all of you for your attention, the participants that have been involved in all of our studies throughout the world, in addition to all of the collaborators. Um, they say that it takes a village. I say it takes villages all over the world to make this sort of research happen. So um, with that, I just want to thank everyone and hope you enjoy the rest of the symposium. Thank you for inviting me to give this talk today. My name is Jane DeHanna, and I'm a faculty member at the West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine, or WVSOM. Today I'm going to talk about the rise and fall of climbing in human evolution. My research focuses on the biomechanics and energetics of climbing in non-human primates, and how this may inform our understanding of human movement. Here's an outline for today's talk. I'll first be talking about what we know about primate locomotion or movement in general, what we know about non-human primate climbing, and what does it all mean for human exercise? As you can see from Darwin's quote, quote, even close to 150 years ago, people recognized that humans are unique in the way that they move. They move bipedally on extended hind limbs or their, their legs, and they move like this almost constantly. It's their primary mode of getting around. Almost unique, I should say, because we have lots of examples of non-human primates that stand up on their hind limbs and move around. Now, they're not doing this all the time. In fact, their primary mode of locomotion tends to be using all four limbs. But we think that since humans and non-human primates move around on their hind limbs and most non-human primates are primarily arboreal or live in the trees, we think that living in the trees had something to do with the evolution of this relatively unique form of human locomotion. Living in the trees is tough. Unlike horses and dogs, mm -hmm. other animals and other animals that are stuck on the ground, primates have to deal with this incredibly complex arboreal environment. 
where it's three-dimensional, and if you fall, it could be really bad. Primates also have to resist gravity when they're going up, even on vertical surfaces that are not trees, like these baboons that you see moving around and inhabiting this vertical cliff face. Anthropologists think that when the earliest primates invaded this arboreal habitat, and in particular moved around on these thin ends of branches or terminal branches, they had to evolve certain morphological or anatomical features that allowed them to stay in that environment. Primates do exhibit several anatomical features that we think are related to living in the trees, like nails instead of claws, long forelimbs or arms, the occasional prehensile or grasping tail that functions as a fifth limb, and perhaps one of the most well-known features is our grasping hands and non-human primates grasping feet. So we think that these somewhat unique anatomical features are actually related to the very unique biomechanical features that we see most non-human primates exhibiting when they're moving around. Now, most of the research we've done is actually on horizontal movement, so moving around on the ground or on simulated arboreal supports that are basically like a branch, um, but horizontally, not going up and down. What we know is that primates actually exhibit a gait sequence that's called diagonal sequence, diagonal couplet. And this is actually in contrast to most other um, mammals. So if you look at your cat or your dog or if you've got horses, they use something called a lateral sequence, lateral couplet gait, where their um, same side limbs, like their right forelimb and their right hind limb, move at a similar pace and at a similar time. That's in contrast to primates where they're using this diagonal sequence, diagonal couplet gait, and the same side limbs, forelimbs and hind limbs, um, are close together when they're on the ground. We think this is related to primates' ability um, to be stable on a, a branch that might move around and bow under their body weight. The second thing we know about primates that's relatively unique compared to other mammals is that primates use much larger forelimb or shoulder angles than non-human mammal, or excuse me, non-primate mammals. Um, this allows for a much longer stride, much longer step. It would also reduce the vertical movements of a branch if the animal is on a tree branch that might bow under their body weight. And finally, we know that primates bear most of their weight on their hind limbs when they're moving around. That's in contrast to what um, mam other mammals do, where other mammals bear most of their weight on their forelimb. This actually is really important for moving around in a three-dimensional arboreal environment where we think that primates had to free up their forelimb in order to grab the branch in front of them or grab the food in front of them or test the support. And ultimately, we think this particular force feature um, is involved in primates eventually being able to move around solely on their hind limbs. The other thing we know about movement in primates and in mammals in general is we have measured the cost of the energy cost of moving horizontally. And we know that for small animals, small primates, it costs quite a bit per unit body mass to move horizontally. And for large primates, it costs a lot less per unit body mass to move horizontally. And that includes people. In fact, people, if this is the uh, general um, regression line of the energy cost of moving horizontally, people are down here somewhere in, in the large body mass size, uh, and it costs them even less than we might expect based on all other mammals to move around horizontally. If we superimpose the percent efficiency uh, over this graph, that would tell us that the um, small primates are actually pretty inefficient. They use a lot of energy to go a specific distance, whereas large primates, including people, are super efficient. They can go much further for a given amount of energy than small primates. What that tells us is that the cost of for performing work is approximately related to the speed at which the muscles are functioning rather than the force that muscles are um, producing work at. It's all great and dandy, but what are primates actually doing when they're climbing? 
Um, my colleagues and I, over the last several years, have been able to collect data, biomechanical data and energetic data, on the costs of climbing in primates. And what we've found relative to those four features we just talked about are, um, are this. First, primates, when they're moving vertically, when they're climbing up a simulated trunk or branch, actually use a lateral sequence diagonal couplet um, type of footfall sequence. So on the face of it, they're going to look more like a cat or a dog or a horse that's moving horizontally, but that diagonal couplet helps keep their diagonally opposite forelimb and hindlimb close together in time and in space on the branch. And certainly that's going to keep the, the primate from falling off the side of the branch. We also know that during um, climbing, primates use more frequent strides and they keep their hands and feet in contact with the branch much longer than they do when they're moving horizontally. And of course, that's going to keep them more safe and secure on that vertical support. Second, we were curious about this uh, force relationship between the forelimbs and hindlimbs. And here we have a graph of increasing body size as we head to the right-hand side of the graph. So small primates down here, large primates up here. And what we're looking at are the balancing forces. So keeping them from, from pushing and pulling into the pole. So if you envision this primate being rotated vertically, we're looking at these forces balancing into and out of the pole. And you can see here that small primates actually kind of have balancing forces that can either be positive or negative, can push into or pull out of the pole to keep them on it. And as we get larger and, and larger to the right-hand side of the graph, we see primates start to use their limbs differently. So we've got the above the graph hind limbs in the darker gray and below the graph forelimbs in the lighter gray. And as we get larger, these limbs are being used differentially. And you can see that these darker hind limb forces, balancing forces, are larger in general from an absolute perspective than these lighter forelimb forces. So larger primates are using this kind of balancing force relationship, where they're putting more balancing force on their hind limbs than they are on their forelimbs. Whereas smaller primates can use their forelimbs and hind limbs similarly. They can use them to balance both into and out of the pole. So we definitely see a force differential um, in when primates are climbing, um, which is very similar to what we're seeing during horizontal locomotion. Third, and, and these data I don't have numbers yet because I'm still analyzing it, uh, we looked at the angles of the forelimbs and the hindlimbs, or the, the shoulder and the hip in primates. And what we've found is that smaller primates, so these are outlines of a bunch of different primates that we've had the opportunity to look at. Smaller primates um, hold themselves, their shoulders and their hips, further from the pole than large primates. Large primates tend to be closer to the pole. And small primates, their hind limb is more crouched than larger primates. So even though they're further from the pole, their hip angle is more flexed than large primates. And, and that makes a little bit of sense if you think about the fact that humans, when they're moving around, and large animals in general, tend to move around with a more extended hind limb. Fourth, we've managed to get some data on what it costs primates to climb. So this is a similar graph to what we saw during horizontal locomotion. This is the horizontal line where it costs small primates a heck of a lot to, to move horizontally, and large primates a little bit less to move horizontally. This line is what it costs primates to move vertically. And you can see small primates, it costs about the same amount of energy to move vertically as it does horizontally. Whereas large primates, it costs a heck of a lot more to move vertically than it does horizontally. And I'll just point out that this is still per unit body mass. And we do, there. I haven't collected data on humans climbing, but there are data out there on people rock climbing, um, and they fall pretty much right on this line, which is approximately, has a slope of approximately zero. I recognize it looks like it's a little, it's a little um, 
decreasing as you get to larger body masses, but there's no significant difference between small primates and large primates. That's great. What does it all mean for human exercise? Well, we know that it's a good way to do a lot of work and burn a lot of energy is to go up. Certainly, we've been aware of this for, for many years. Um, I've got some pictures here of, of hiking uh, in the foothills of the Alps, uh, and you can see the elevation change. Um, I can tell I'm a little embarrassed. I'm not going to show you how much energy it costs me, but it costs me a lot of energy to do that. And we know that climbing is similar to steep incline locomotion, or stair climbing, at least, of course, for the lower limb. However, it does mean that anatomical differences, like limb, le limb length, joint mobility, even grasping hands and feet, may not matter overall for the cost of climbing. Um, but, but it may matter for different styles of climbing, because all of the data we've collected so far are based on a specific style of climbing. So where do we go from here? We know that primates, including humans, use different styles of climbing. All the data I've collected so far with my colleagues are on non-human primates climbing in, in this type of, of format, where they're mostly moving their limbs in two dimensions rather than three dimensions out like this, where we see this young gentleman. Um, this is a three-dimensional style of climbing that we call uh, frog-style climbing. Um, so we've only looked at this style of climbing. But we know people and other non-human uh, primates climb in a variety of different ways. There's other researchers out there looking at the costs um, and biomechanics of moving in a three-dimensional environment, such you know, utilizing uh, participants that are parkour athletes um, that can regularly traverse these, these crazy three-dimensional environments. I and my colleagues have begun to look at the biomechanics and costs of traversing gaps um, by non-human primates, and particularly if those gaps are vertical, you can see the somewhat acrobatic movement by these um, pygmy slow lorises and slender lorises. And finally, we have no idea what it costs to go down. Certainly, we know that it could cost nothing to go down, and hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, and in resisting gravity, if you're descending, you're likely to be generating quite a bit of force to resist that gravity. And so there we think the costs will go up. We also recognize that humans are unable to descend um, using these inverted foot postures, like this I.I. here. Um, and so certainly that kind of information um, the, the ability anatomically to use certain postures um, in non-human primates, we're not going to see in human primates. So there's still quite a bit to, to learn about climbing, both in non-human primates and in human primates. I would like to take a moment to um, indicate that all of the animal work that's been done over the past many years has been approved by an animal ethics review committee before it's ever been conducted um, with the animals. And I'd also like to thank the many animal handlers um, and, and, and keepers for assistance with data collection. Also, the many wonderful colleagues that I've had discussions with about this work. And finally, of course, the funding sources, NSF and WVSOM intramural funds. Thanks. The work I'm going to present today is controversial, and it appears to be particularly unpopular and problem problematic among anthropologists. So I want to thank our symposium organizers, Tatum and Dan, for including me in this important discussion. I'm going to start with the two premises this work is based on. The first premise is that although humans are the most empathetic and cooperative species on the planet, we, are all, we also have a real problem with violence the human suffering as a result of violence that's reported in the weekly news every week of every year documents that observation. The second premise is to the extent that we can find ways to reduce aggression and violence in the future, we should do so. We can all agree that reducing violence is, is, is a good thing, good idea. As scientists, we know that the best solutions to our biggest problems stem from understanding. I'm a comparative physiologist, a comparative biomechanist, and I believe that the fields 
that those fields can contribute to a better understanding of human violence in at least two ways. First, biomechanics has a potential to falsify the hypothesis that violence is deeply rooted in our evolutionary past. If the anatomical characters that distinguish the bipedal apes from the other apes do not improve fighting performance, the idea that aggressive behavior was important to our evolution can be discarded. Second, biomechanics also has potential to refute the hypothesis that much of human aggression is re is rooted in the selection that shaped our mating system. If the anatomy and physiological characters that can be demonstrated to improve fighting performance are not expressed differently in males and females, that is, they're not sexually dimorphic, it becomes very difficult to argue that human violence is linked to our mating system. And I'll have more to say about this in a moment. So the broad field of evolutionary anthropology has played an important role in addressing these questions. But the group of physiologists and biomechanists who are most interested in human evolution have largely been missing in action from addressing these questions. And I'm hoping that can change because the quickest path to a more peaceful future rides on improved understanding. So one of the topics of this symposium is the anatomy and physiology that makes humans exceptional runners. Because running long distance distances is physically demanding, the broad set of anatomical and physiological characters that improve running performance and are at the same time unique to the genus Homo provide really the most compelling argument that selection on endurance running was important in human evolution. We are the primate that evolved to run long distances. Similarly, the physical demands of fighting are high. And regardless of what species we're talking about, when males fight, the stakes in terms of reproductive fitness are also high. So if physical aggression was important in the evolution of hominids, it should be reflected in the anatomical characters that distinguish hominids from the other primates. So a word or definition uh, of this phrase, male contest competition. It is the mode of sexual selection in which mating opportunities are obtained through using force or threat of force to exclude same-sex competitors. It's basically uh, referring to male-male fighting. And there's growing evidence from a variety of fields that male contest competition has played a role in our evolution and in human aggression. This evidence comes from physiological, or I'm sorry, phylogenetic comparisons of, of primates, archaeology, population genetics, analysis of male-male, male-female dimorphism based on sexual selection theory, and from evolutionary psychology. And as I alluded to, the empty seat in this discussion is the chair reserved for physiologists and biomechanists. I believe that we can contribute to this endeavor by identifying which characters improve fighting performance and then documenting the extent to which those characters are sexually dimorphic, demonstrating that a character that improves fighting performance is expressed to a greater extent in males supports the hypothesis that we are specialized for male contest competition. Okay, so here is a family tree, a phylogeny of the great apes, and plotted on it are the shared derived characters, the unique characters for the group that we have argued actually improve fighting performance. For the great apes, rel relative to the other primates, the short, the short legs of the great apes, and the posture of their feet, the plantar foot posture, we have suggested improve fighting performance within, within the great apes. In the lineage that gave rise to humans, the hominid lineage, the bipedal apes, there are a suite of characters that we think improve fighting performance, including habitual bipedalism, some, of, some aspects of the locomotor muscles, proportions of the hand, proportions of the face, facial hair on males, and certain aspects of the dimorphism in upper body strength. Now, these are characters that improve performance in a particular type of fighting that is 
primarily unique to the great apes, grappling and striking with the arms. And in the bipedal apes, the mode of striking is, is unique, uh, and punching, punching with fist. And it's this idea, the idea that our lineage, the hominins, are specialized for punching with fist that has been so controversial. And so what I want to do is just mention in the time that's remaining in this talk, quickly mention observations from two of our experiments that are in fact test of, of the punching hypothesis. The first has to do with the proportions of our hand that not only allow manual dexterity, but also allow the hand to be clenched into a fist, which we argue protects the hand when it's used to strike. And the second has to do with specific predictions about which muscles should be more powerful uh, if we are specialized for, for punching. Which muscles should show the greatest amount of sexual dimorphism differences between males and females? Okay, so let's take the hands first. This illustration compares the proportions and shape of the hands of a chimpanzee to those of a human. And in comparison to the other great apes, the hands of humans are characterized by shorter fingers, shorter palms, and a longer, stronger thumb. Now, these proportions for 60 years now have been argued to be associated with manual dexterity. And there's no doubt that that's true, right? Everything that humans do, we basically do with our hands. We are the most dexterous of, of, of all animals. We're not disagreeing with that. What we are doing is suggesting that, that these hand proportions also allow us to do something else, which is to roll our fingers and clench our hand in a fist, which we're suggesting provides protection to the connective tissues, to the hand itself, to the bones, when we use it to strike. Okay, so the other point I need to mention is that these hand proportions, human-like hand proportions, have been around for a long time. To the best that we can determine from the fossil record, they more or less appear at the same time as habitual bipedal evolution, going back uh, over four million years. So here's the experiment. Uh, we, were, we used uh, the arms for cadavers because these were measurements we couldn't take in live subjects. Basically, we mounted the arm on a platform, tied lines to the tendons, and then adjusted the tension in those lines or those tendons to put the hand in whatever posture we wanted to study. The platform was then mounted on a pendulum, which we could swing at a, a weight, that a sus suspended weight that was instrumented with an accelerometer. This allowed us to measure the force of the strike, and then we also put... Um, strain gauges, instrumented strain gauges on the metacarpals so that we could measure the strain or the deformation that occurred associated with, with a given force. These are the three hand postures that we studied. On the left, we've got the, the normal clenched fist. In the middle, we have something we call the unbuttressed fist, where the fingers were, were folded against the palm and the, the thumb was extended rather than wrapped. And then the, on the right, we have a slapping posture. Here are the results from one of our subjects. On the y-axis, we have the strain. When you think of this as just the deformation or the bending of the metacarpal. And again, I should say the metacarpals are the bones in the palm of the hand. So we've got the bending of the, of the bone on the y-axis and the force of a given strike on the x-axis. And what you can see is that in the slapping posture, for any given force, the strain is the highest. The strain or the deformation is intermediate in the unbuttressed posture, and the strain, the bending, is lowest in the buttressed posture. So these are results that are entirely consistent with the hypothesis that a clenched fist provi provides protection of the bones when it's used to strike. Okay, so we're not suggesting that human hand proportions evolved for striking. And we're not suggesting that they've evolved solely for manual dexterity. What we're suggesting is that these are the hand proportions that allow us to do both. Both. Manual dexterity requires a relatively difficult musculoskeletal structure, and that structure is important 
important enough that it needs to be protected if it's used to strike. If there's truth to this story, you would anticipate that there would be sexual dimorphism in the structure of the hand because it's primarily males that are doing the punching, right? Females, human females do strike with a fist, but not with nearly the frequency or the ferocity that males strike with a fist. So you could anticipate there would be sexual dimorphism in the hand associated with a, a functional trade-off. And so here is a, a, a photograph comparing a male and female hand. I'll let you guess which is which. In fact, um, I think it's we recognize male and female hands in most cases. And the difference is in shape. These, this comparison is useful because the, the palm or the overall length of, of, of the whole hand is similar between these two individuals. And I'm going to plot the, the dimensions of the width on the left in the female hand and then use those same links in, in the equivalent points in the male hand. And you can see that in every metric, the male hand is broader, it's wider, and the bones are more robust. There are also uh, recognized differences in the lengths of some of, in some of the digits. Okay, we've got this sexual dimorphism. What is it about? What we would like to suggest is that it actually represents a functional trade-off. Selection for high levels of dexterity, which are more apparent in the female hand on the left, and selection for some level of increased robusticity associated with striking or punching in the male hand on the right. The other explanation, other than the punching hypothesis, that could explain this dimorphism is simply the division of labor that exists between males and females in foraging subsistence, right? Males and female hunter-gatherers do different engage in different behaviors simply in foraging. And males are recognized to engage in behaviors that require larger forces applied to the environment. So maybe this dimorphism that we're illustrating here is, is a, a function of that division of labor. On to the next experiment. Um, if selection on punching played a role in the evolution of the human musculoskeletal system, we would expect high levels of sexual dimorphism in the muscles that are responsible for punching. So basically the hypothesis is that we, we or we're predicting greater sexual dimorphism in the strength of the muscles that push the hand forward in a punching motion compared to the muscles, sexual dimorphism in the muscles that pull the hand back. That's the prediction. And the way we tested that was with an arm crank ergometer um, in which we could measure the power of a forward push, very similar to a striking motion, and the power in pulling it, reversing it, pulling it back. So again, the prediction is there'll be more dimorphism, a greater difference between males and females in the forward push than in the rearward pull. We also wanted to do the same comparison for a throwing motion. And unfortunately, our arm crank ergometer was not effective for that because of the motion was too awkward. Uh, it just really didn't match a throwing motion. And it also uh, applied when our subjects were maximally trying to apply really large strains, uncomfortable strains to the shoulder. So instead, we settled for just measuring maximum force in a forward pull versus force, maximum force in a rearward pull. I'm not entirely satisfied with, with this metric, but at this point, and we're thinking about transducers to make a more uh, realistic, more useful comparison more realistic measurement of power. But at this point, this at this point, this is what we have. So here are the results. Oh, we had 19 female subjects and 20 male subjects. And here's the result for the punching comparison, pushing forward and pulling back. The white bars are the female subjects, the gray bars are the male subjects. And on the left, in the first graph, we have the results for the forward push, and the right bars are associated with the rearward pull. And what we're looking at here is average power during this maximal effort push and pull. And you can see that the dimorphism, the difference between males and females is dramatic. It's over twofold in both 
going forward and going back. The graph on the right plots the ratio of forward versus backward power for males, I mean, for females and for males. And what you can see is that this ratio is significantly greater in males, indicating that there is, in fact, more sexual dimorphism in the forward motion than in the rearward pull. So this is consistent with, uh, with, with punching playing an important role in the evolution of sexual dimorphism of, of strength in the upper body, of the upper body. Here are the results for our forward pull and forward push in a throwing posture. And again, there's large sexual dimorphism, particularly in the forward motion or forward pulling motion. And again, we're looking at force instead of power here. But importantly, there is not, there is a difference, but it's not significant but in the ratio of forward versus uh, backward force. The lack of significance there is consistent with, with uh, the behavior of punching playing a larger role in the evolution of sexual dimorphism and upper body strength and throwing. But again, I want to emphasize that we're not entirely satisfied, satisfied with this metric and we want to revisit uh, this, this study in the future. Okay, we've got two explanations to explain this sexual dimorphism in upper body strength. One is the division of labor associated with foraging subsistence, and the other is this male contest competition, the punching hypothesis. At this point, we can't separate either one, right? We think they're both possible and candidates, likely contributors to the sexual dimorphism in upper body strength. But I do want to mention that this, the division of labor argument associated with foraging subsistence, association with the difference in male and female roles, that explanation for sexual dimorphism does not work for the very similar sexual dimorphism that it is observed in our closest relatives, the chimps, the gorillas, the orangutans. They have very similar sexual dimorphism in, in strength, but they don't have that division of labor in foraging subsistence. Okay, so in conclusion, I just want to say that what we've argued is that many of the derived, the unique musculoskeletal characters of the great apes and the bipedal apes do improve for fighting performance. And many of these, but not all, are sexually dimorphic. And I want to end with asking why ask this question. The question, are hominins, bipedal apes, anatomically specialized for fighting? Well, the first answer is that the scientific method involves testing alternative hypotheses. So that's what we're doing with, with, with these experiments. The second reason is that among mammals and primates, humans are a relatively violent species. And there's growing evidence that at some level, that violence is associated with selection on our mating system. And then third, if that point is true, if that second point is true, acknowledging and, under, acknowledging and understanding the legacy of male interpersonal and group aggression can help guide policy directed at reducing violence in the future. Okay, so I want to acknowledge the people who have collaborated on the various projects we've been involved with over the past couple of decades on this question. All of them are students, undergraduate and graduate students. They've made the work possible and they've made the work fun. Thank you very much for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.